I don't think there's any field of medicine where you can do as much as we do and make people normal again. Because mm -hmm. most other medicine, if you think about it, is treating chronic disease or it's never going to be normal again. It's just stemming the tide or doing something to keep them going, or, but to make them run a marathon again. Or, I mean, it's really quite amazing. Welcome to the OTA Podcast, your home for conversations with leading experts in orthopedic trauma. Please note that the views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Orthopedic Trauma Association or its members. And now a message from OTA sponsor, OsoVR. Accelerating innovation in orthopedics is rapidly expanding the number of procedures and complexity of their learning curves. Today's orthopedists have more to learn over a longer period of time. Used by renowned teaching hospitals, top medical device companies, and tens of thousands of surgeons, OsoVR is bridging the surgical training gap and accelerating the learning curve. Visit www.osovr.com to request more information. Hello, and welcome to the OTA Podcast. My name is Michael Banksy. I'm your host for your episode of the OTA Podcast channel. I'm an orthopedic trauma and orthoplasty surgeon at the University of Vermont Medical Center. Today's episode is dedicated to icons of orthopedic trauma. Today's guest is Dr. David Helfert from New York. Dr. Halford is Chief Emeritus of the Orthopedic Trauma Service at the Hospital for Special Surgery in New York Presbyterian Hospital. He is Professor of Orthopedic Surgery at Weill Cornell Medicine. Dr. Halford is a world-renowned orthopedic surgeon, and he has served as member of the Board of Directors of Synthes, Chairman of AO Clinical Investigation and Documentation, and President of the Orthopedic Trauma Association. Dr. Halford is globally published and received numerous honors, including the Hospital for Special Surgery Lifetime Achievement Award. Under his direction, his research studies have made significant contribution to the field of orthopedic trauma, and his research is consistently being presented both nationally and internationally. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Halford. And I want to tell you that on a personal note, I hear your name all the time because two of my partners were trained under you. So welcome, and we appreciate you joining us. Thank you for the invitation. I appreciate it. Excellent. So let's just get started with um, how you got interested in the field. And, you know, as we all know, you were trained elsewhere. And tell us how you ended up at HSS as the leader of orthopedic trauma. I'm very fortunate to get into orthopedics. My father was an orthopedic surgeon, and he was my role model. And when I went to medical school in South Africa, because my dad was an orthopedic surgeon, I decided I wanted to do general surgery because I didn't want to just be my father's son. I wanted to branch out on my own. And then after medical school, I went started a general surgery residency in South Africa and realized that I was just being foolish. It was in my genes, in my blood, that I should have been an orthopedic surgeon. So I came cap in hand to my dad and I said, okay, I, I get it. I want to be an orthopedic surgeon just like you. And he said, well, at the present time, it's not a good time in South Africa to do orthopedics because the programs were in a state of flux. He said, you should go to America. And he said to me, so to do orthopedics in America, he said, you need to go to Harvard, Yale, Penn, Columbia, Duke, Cornell, McGill, Stanford. 
he didn't realize I wasn't that good a student. I mean, but anyway, he was a biased father, as you could imagine. So in those days, you fill out all these applications, and it was not computer to do it. You had to fill out these reams of applications. So I took his advice, and I filled out all these applications. I had no really academic credentials then. I was just working my tail off as a surgery resident in a three and a half thousand bedded hospital. So you can imagine how busy we were. But I got a lot of surgical experience. So I sent all the applications off, and then they all responded, yes, we'll let you know, we'll let you know, we'll let you know when the committee meets. And then I got a letter from Johns Hopkins to say they wanted me to interview in two weeks' time. I'm in South Africa, and this is in Baltimore, Maryland. Mm -hmm. And about two weeks before I got this letter, one of my co-residents, we were senior registrars, came down with hepatitis. So instead of a one and three rotation, it was a one and two rotation. So I didn't know what to do. I mean, uh, obviously the opportunity to go and interview at Johns Hopkins was something that was a dream, but I decided I couldn't do it. So I wrote back a letter to the chief who was Professor Robbie Robinson. And I explained the situation. I said, I, unfortunately I can't come, but hopefully you give me a chance in the future. As it turned out, little did I know, as he separately told me subsequently, when he got the letter, he said to her, this is the guy we want. Tell him he can interview the day he starts. That's amazing. You know how life happens and things that happen in life? So that was a unique opportunity, and I was just a lucky guy, very fortunate, and fortunate to find a sympathetic ear on the other side. So I did my orthopedic training at Johns Hopkins, and I wasn't sure what I wanted to do in orthopedics. I was interested in trauma and sports, but I sort of hadn't made up my mind between the two. And I was in my not my chief year, but the year before my senior year as an orthopedic resident. And the chief, Robbie Robinson, said that Andy Weiland, who was the, on staff then and the hand surgeon, who had done a fellowship in the AO with Hans Bullenager, had invited Maurice Mueller to give grand rounds, Professor Mueller to give grand rounds at Johns Hopkins. And Robbie Robinson said, you're off for two days. You're his chauffeur, valet, guide, whatever he needs, you're his man. So I picked him up at the airport, and I spent 48 hours, basically, with Professor Mueller. Wow. And got to know him a little bit. And I still didn't know what, but then he gave a lecture on the AO and what they were doing at that stage in managing trauma and the data they had about quality of life and mobilizing people and return to work, and I was blown away. So w when was that? This was 19, probably 1979. I was blown away. So I said, this is for me. This is cool. This is for me. So I said to him, was there any chance I can come visit? So he said, well, what are you doing next year? I said, well, I'm finished my training next year as a chief. And he says, well, what about the year after? He says, I said, well, I haven't made my plans. I was planning on applying for fellowships. And he said, well, why don't you come spend six months and do a trauma fellowship with me? So that's what I did. But I already agreed to spend six months at UCLA doing a sports fellowship with Jerry Feynman, who was a Hopkins, former Hopkins graduate. So I thought I could spend my life being both an orthopedic trauma surgeon, both hard and soft tissue, so I did both fellowships. But my fellowship in Bern with Professor Mueller and Reinhold Guns changed my life. These were two master surgeons. Somehow they took a shine to me, I don't know why, but they did. And I was in the OR almost every day. I never did one case as the primary surgeon. I was always the first assistant, but I learned so much from these two guys, not just about 
the surgery, but about preoperative planning, about thinking about injuries, thinking about injuries, how they happen, how they heal, thinking about the patient. It was really quite an education. I just, every day it was remarkable. And then at the end of that, I came back to Hopkins because uh, they'd offered me a job to come back and both at Johns Hopkins and at Union Memorial because they wanted to build a sports clinic at Union Memorial. So I was theoretically, I was the first fellowship trained sports doctor in Baltimore when I came back. And with shock trauma in Baltimore at the University of Maryland, we didn't get a lot of the high energy trauma at Hopkins and Union Memorial. We did get all the pediatric trauma because Johns Hopkins is the pediatric trauma center for Maryland, Northern Virginia, Pennsylvania. So I got a lot of experience with pediatric trauma, but not with adult trauma coming back. And after four years of doing that, I became an arthroscopist and I couldn't stand it anymore because every surgeon in Baltimore wanted to bring their cases down and have me do the arthroscopy with them because no one had ever trained in arthroscopy. It was so boring. <laughs> Terrible. So I decided at that stage I needed a real trauma job and Phil Spiegel offered me to be the trauma surgeon with Jeff Mass down in Tampa and I went down in 1986. But I want to tell you, when I came back from Switzerland, I'd already been to the Davos course as a, I guess, as Maurice Mueller's surf. I walked around with him, carried his bags, went to all his lectures, sort of guarded him, protected him. And so I met, he introduced me to everybody. So I met everybody sort of in the AO, even though I wasn't invited to the meeting, but I was with Maurice Mueller. This was at the end of my fellowship in 1981. And then came back to the United States. And then the first AO course that I went to as an instructor was in 82 in, in Vermont. It was an AO basic course, I think it was. And Emil Letournel and was the guest. Wow. I hadn't met him when I was in Europe. Reinhold Guns and Emil Letournel were the two guests. And Emil Letournel gave a couple of lectures and started talking. And then we did some labs on the... Astablum. And that was like, for me, opened up another window that I thought he was such a passionate guy, such a good surgeon, so keen to teach and to do good that I sort of fell in love with the guy really more than anything else. And that got me started on Astablum fractures. And right. so I was very lucky, very fortunate, and didn't do much in the way of Astablum surgery until I went to Tampa. And then for the five years I was Tampa, we were inordinately busy doing pelvic and establish surgery. And that's really where I learned myself how to do pelvic and establish surgery. So you're telling me that this is in the 80s where they were fixing those fractures in Switzerland and in the States, they were now being fixed operatively? I want to tell you, in the early 80s, there was very little acetabular or pelvic surgery done. Everybody was putting on an external fixture. And that was the treatment of choice. Very limited, if any, internal fixation. As far as regular trauma, it was just evolving with intramedullary nails. Hip screws were still, it was, we still didn't have trochanteric nails. or uh, So it was a DHS. And there were plates and screws. But, you know, the American Academy felt that fixing an open fracture was considered heresy in the 70s and 80s. That's incredible. Yeah. So it took a while. I think it really took my, just about myself. There were a series of us who had been to Europe and came back to America 
working in major trauma centers and formed the OTHA group, which was the Orthopedic Trauma Hospital Association, which preceded ODA. And that was really Mike Chapman and Ted Hansen and Dave Seligson. And these guys sort of put the European and, and border from Buffalo. They were sort of the guys, my predecessors in America. And then I came along with a bunch of other guys like Jeff Mass, Joe Matter, a whole bunch of us. We were sort of like, just not the next generation because it wasn't that long, but maybe many generation later and really put uh, internal fixation on the map in North America. Did you get any resistance? Were people saying you guys are, shouldn't be doing this? You know, I think we were all pretty egotistical and arrogant. <laughs> <laughs> and we knew this was the right way to go because we could see the results of having gone there and seen what they do and see whether the patients were doing better and see how we could restore deformity to normal. They were all good surgeons too. So I think it was a matter of, in good surgeons, as you know, this works very well. And yeah. so I think we were pretty much committed. And yeah, I'm sure that there were, I, I personally had no no antagonism and no, I didn't feel it at all. Maybe some other people did, but I didn't notice that at all. Everybody thought, wow, this is great. Got it. And how have things changed over the past, I guess, 30 years in terms of the open reduction to fixation of pelvic acetabular fractures? Well, I think that, you just want to talk about open reduction internal fixation of all fractures or pelvic fractures? Let's talk about pelvic fractures for now. Yeah, so, you know, when anything starts initially, there's an enthusiasm without really understanding all the indications and what the potential complications were. So I think for those not as carefully trained, I think there was a pendulum swing to do a lot of stuff, and then the pendulum swung back a little bit because there were extensive complications the big extensile approaches, posterior approaches to the pelvis. You know, people were getting horrendous complications. And then, you know, the pendulum swings back to the middle a little bit as you understand what's doable, what's not doable, how to do it. Image intensification really helped a lot. Being able to operate on a radiolucent table, resuscitation techniques. So a lot of things evolved at the same time to make it more feasible. I want to tell you, when I started really doing a lot of acetabular fractures, I got married in 86 and we moved to Tampa. And for the first year or two, my wife will tell you, many times, there's my wife in bed with a negligee and I climb into bed with the plastic pelvis, with the x-rays, with Littonel's book, and I'm trying to draw the plastic pelvis, what I'm gonna do the next day and trying to understand it all. I also, in Tampa, I was fortunate to befriend the guy from the morgue, the diener in the morgue, who was an alcoholic. And all I had to do was give him a bottle of Jack Daniels and he'd let me come in and operate on one of these cadavers before he closed it up. So it cost me a lot of Jack Daniels, but it was really good because <laughs> literally a day or two after someone died, I could get in there and do what I needed to do. So there's a learning curve. Unfortunately, we didn't have in pelvic and acetabular fractures the learning that is available today from ODA and Yale and these organizations because there were no cadaveric courses. There weren't the masters trying to teach. They were, the technology wasn't all in, uh, available on the internet. So you had to sort of self-learn a little bit. And the best way to self-learn, to avoid mistakes. You don't want to learn by your mistakes. You want to learn the other way, which is a better way, obviously. So I operated on a lot of cadavers, and I learned a lot doing that. And then I would send my x-rays. It wasn't like today where it was all done digitally. I'd have to 
take a slide and send it to Reinald Gantz or Letonel and they'd make some comments. What the hell were you thinking or this or that or the other? And that's how we learned. Yeah, incredible. And were there any times that you're like, you know what, this is a mistake? Could the wrong people be causing too much morbidity if done inappropriately? You know, I've always felt that there's nothing like you know as a trauma surgeon. There's nothing like someone's really messed up in an injury. And four months later, they walk into your office and everything's healed and they're doing fine. So the highs are incredibly high. And I don't think there's anything in medicine because I don't think there's any field of medicine where you can do as much as we do and make people normal again. Because mm -hmm. most other medicine, if you think about it, is treating chronic disease or it's never going to be normal again. It's just stemming the tide or doing something to keep them going, or, but to make them run a marathon again. Or, I mean, it's really quite amazing. So I always thought that there was incredible high to do what we do. However, the lows are equally low. Mm -hmm. So you have to be humble and you have to understand what you can and cannot do. So I've always felt all along that the best thing we can do to, number one is to be a good surgeon yourself and to pay attention to all the details and try and make everything perfect. That helps one patient. If on the other hand, you can teach others to do the same thing, so that's why I thought fellowships were so important because if we can train fellows to do the same, then they expand dramatically the number of people that can be similarly helped. I think the same with courses, but I don't think pelvic nest level of surgery is a field of uh, orthopedics where you should dabble in it. You're either in it or you're not in it. Mm -hmm. It's too complicated, it's too difficult. So I think in the early rush of enthusiasm, I think a significant amount of let me, inadvertent or not excellent surgery was done, not because people had any malintent, it's just that they got into trouble. They couldn't work it out. You know, as you know, it's not easy. Mm -hmm. But I think uh, after a while they realized doing this for 14 hours and having an re end result like that just wasn't the time and effort. So they started referring more of those cases. And then I think over time we've trained a lot of more people to do them. So I don't think that happens as much now as it happened then. But I think the AO has done a remarkable job. The Big Trauma Association has done a remarkable job in uh, helping educate, train, and continue upgrade our knowledge base. And now a message from OTA sponsor OsoVR. Through its immersive VR platform, OsoVR offers a realistic, hands-on training environment leading to real-world performance gains. In a recent validation study, surgeons training with OsoVR showed a 230% improvement in the participants' overall surgical performance. Oso's team, combining the power of practicing clinicians and industry veterans from companies like Apple, Microsoft, and Industrial Light & Magic, is home to the largest VR surgical training library. Visit www.osovr.com to request more information. Yeah, I completely agree. I took both the Academy and the AO Havoc as a courses, and it's amazing the enthusiasm and the knowledge that exists in the room. So how did you end up moving to New York? So I was down in Tampa for five years. Jeff Mast was, was a great resource for me because we got to know each other. He was in Bern at the same time I was in Bern. When I was doing my fellowship, he was doing some work with Reinhold Gantz and Maurice Mueller. So he and I um, spent a lot of time together, got to know each other really well, collaborated together. And then 
One of the reasons I went down to Tampa is because Phil Spiegel was the chief. He was one of the original OTHA members. And he invited me down, and Jeff was down there. And then after a year, Jeff left. They had a falling out, and Jeff left. So it left me in Then I became chief of trauma and chief of Tampa General Hospital, which was a big job. It was a very good education for me, not only just being a surgeon and running my little service, but running you know, orthopedics in the hospital. So it was a, a good learning experience for me, and it was a good time for me in my evolution to where I am today. But then um, I wanted to be an academic. I liked being part of the university. And then the group that I was with had a falling out with the university and went private. And I didn't really didn't want to be, they weren't so keen on me operating on some people that couldn't afford to be operated on. So, and when you're doing trauma, it's, you know, you're sort of going to take what comes. So I decided Andy Weiland became chief in New York. And he invited me up to interview and to create a trauma service. We didn't really have a trauma service. There was a little fracture service, you know, doing a few hip fractures, ankle fracture, wasn't a trauma service. So I had the opportunity of building a trauma service at the Hospital for Special Surgery in New York Presbyterian for Wheel Canal and moved in 91. And that was fantastic for me. I got tremendous support to do it. I had a free reign. They gave me everything I needed. And, you know, and here, what are we... Um, 30 years later, and it's become a nationally recognized orthopedic trauma service, and we've trained, taken care of a lot of folks, and we've trained a lot of folks. So, you know, I'm a very lucky guy. It worked out inordinately well for my benefit. Yeah, what an incredible achievement. How many fellows have you trained? I think about 70. 70, wow. I know that you're quite famous for your retreat that happens with the fellows every year. Can you share a little bit of that about that? Yeah, I think that part of what I learned in Switzerland, what I learned from Robbie Robinson in Baltimore, I want to give him credit, he became a mentor for me. And what I learned in Switzerland with Reinhold Guns and Maurice Muller, they became mentors. And they were not just a mentor in name, they were actually living resources and supporters and advisors. And I got so much benefit from that that I decided with my fellowships that the fellowship is just one year, but the relationship should continue ad infinitum because, well, nothing's ad infinitum, but for, for an extended period of time, because I learned as much from the fellows and them questioning and answering questions, and they become chiefs in their own departments, and we collaborate. And so I decided that the most, it's hard to do that on a one-off basis. So I decided uh, every year for a long weekend, from Wednesday to Sunday, we would all meet. Everybody's invited, and those that could come would come. And they'd all pay their way to get there and pay for the hotel, and I would fund the rest. And the entry criteria is you had to bring your best and worst case of the last year. And you expected to bring your spouse, girlfriend, family, because that's what it's all about. Mm -hmm. And in the mornings, we meet at 7 till about noon, and you go over the best and the worst case. And everybody learns much more from the worst case than the best case. But, you know, it's not judgmental. It's really educational. And, yeah, it's fun. And there's a little guys, are, they all know each other now, you know, so it's really like collegial. And then in the afternoon and evenings, we get together and meet with the families and maybe go for a hike or bike ride or play golf or whatever. And then every night we get, all get together outdoors and have uh, you know, a stand-up cocktail dinner, whatever it is. And it's been great. 
it's really been something special. More for me probably than for them. I'm sure equally for them. <laughs> what do you think about the new technology right now? Let's say, is it going to affect how we do surgery? Do you use the O-arm? Do you use any robotics or navigation or 3D printed stuff? Number one, I think I'm a little bit of a dinosaur. I'm an old curmudgeon, really, to a certain extent. So I think the more experience you have, the longer you do it, the less you need all of that stuff. The, the sooner you start doing some of the stuff, the more you need all of that. However, I think the idea, definitely technology, I think has helped us primarily in CT, 3Ds, in understanding the injury and pre-op planning. I think that's much more important than having all that stuff in the operating room. And then having fluoroscopy and good fluoroscopy in the operating room is probably for most of the stuff we do all we need. Now, are there a few cases where in retrospect, in an acetabular fracture, I would have liked to have had one of those O-arms or something like that historically to understand a little bit better? Yes. And I've left the operating room not feeling great about something that I couldn't quite ascertain and got a CT scan and subsequently took the patient back. That would have been obviated, but that was very rare. So I think that we mustn't lose touch of the fact that preoperative planning is probably the most important thing we can do. Spending time in a cadaver and understanding the anatomy. And I think most of the failings that we have in orthopedic trauma, and especially in pelvis and acetabular, is you don't really understand what you got. Mm -hmm. So when you try to fix it, if you don't fully understand what you got, it's much harder to fix it. And so I think the idea of these are going to solve your problem intraoperatively, I think are unlikely. But understand that I don't know enough about them. I don't really use them a lot. So I'm not really qualified to say what the benefits are. Do I need them? No, not right now. Got it. One of the challenges that we have at the University of Vermont is sometimes we are not sure how to treat the more geriatric acetabular fractures, you know, big surgery, elderly patients. And, you know, the outcome is not often the best. Uh, some people talk about acute or hip replacements. Any thought about that? Yeah, of course. So, you know, I started out as a pelvic and acetabular surgeon. I've probably done about 1,500 acetabular something in that range. Wow. I started out operating 85 to 90% on young people and 5 and 10% on elderly people because that's what we saw down in Florida. And when I came to New York, these were motorcyclists and high-energy injuries. And this was before airbags and side bags and uh, mm -hmm. so we got a lot of t-bones a lot of real high ngs over the last i don't know five to ten years those numbers have flipped i think i do now 80 percent elderly and 20 percent young people mm -hmm. which is an amazing yeah it's surprising yeah and so we have to separate the geriatric fracture that happens very low energy with terrible bone in someone with a lot of comorbidities, that's one group. And we can't just call them all geriatric fractures because there's another group, the 65-year-old who's coming back from his 60-mile bike ride, but he's mm -hmm. 65 or 70, and it's a completely different patient from the elderly geriatric osteoporotic comorbidity type fracture. So, yes, I think that for me, if you can do in that former one that we talked about, the very elderly or comorbid, 
if you can do a primary total hip and get the patient up and about, I think that that's the right treatment for that patient. However, if you can't do a primary total hip because of there's no bone stock to do the primary total hip, then I think you mandate it to fix it and do the primary total hip. So we're not obviating the necessity to fix it, but somehow you, you need to combine the two. However, there's a whole slew of elderly people who have acetabular fractures that should be fixed and not have a total hip. And we see more and more of those today. And decision-making, there are many times when I get from the fellows will send me an x-ray, what do you think? Do you think we should, I should operate on this or not operate on this? None of us have exactly the right answer because without knowing the personality of the patient, the patient's desires and demands, the medical history, the quality of the bone, it's very difficult to make these decisions. I'm pretty aggressive because we published on acetabular fracture in the elderly. And I believe we should, whatever we do, we need to get the patient out of bed the day after surgery. There's nothing we should do that should keep them in bed. So whatever you do to get them out of bed, and then if you think that you can fix it adequately to allow weight-bearing, great. If you don't think you can fix it adequately, I don't have a problem getting out of bed and using a walker. I don't have a problem with that, if that's what it needs. But we don't know the final answer, I don't believe, for what's doable, what's not doable, what's the best for those. Obviously, I have a lot of people at special surgery. I think we have like 60 orthoplasty surgeons and more every day. And they believe anything is orthoplasty You understand? <laughs> and I'm the other side of the coin. So, But what's interesting is that when the orthoplasty surgeons have friends or family, they refer the patient to me to make the decision. In <laughs> other words, you know, if you can save the hip, yeah. great. So I think that should be there. If you think you can save the hip, and not kill the patient, and get them mobilized and save their hip from a total hip, I think that's a good thing. But if you don't think you can save the hip, it's not a good thing. Got it. What advice do you have for people who are doing, or just starting out with pelvic acetabular fractures? When you get married, get in bed with the pelvis and the <laughs> x-rays and Littonel's book, and pay attention to what you're going to do. No. <laughs> what I would say is, there's no end to the learning curve. As soon as you think you know it all, you don't know it all. And the more you know, the less you know. Number two, perfect is perfect. So if you want to do that kind of surgery, it's an articular fracture in the acetabulum, your goal and your end result should be perfect. That's why I get a CAT scan post-op on every case. Every case still? Yeah, still. Because people tell me, do I need to do a CAT scan in every case? No, but it's very important for my fellows and the residents to see what we consider perfect and to understand what we achieved. And plain x-rays don't, don't really do it. Mm -hmm. It's also for my database, because we've published now on extensively, on, because we have a large database with us. People who tell me in the trauma world, well, you know, that's an unnecessary CT, but they get seven head CTs in 10 days. And now they're complaining about one post-op CT. I mean, it's ridiculous. So that's, I think it's very important for your learning curve. In other words, perfect is perfect and don't, Kid yourself, if it's not perfect, it's not perfect. It's being like pregnant. You know, you're pregnant or you're not pregnant. It's not mm -hmm. almost pregnant. It's not almost perfect. Perfect is a non-qualifiable word, if you think about it. So your goal must be perfect. Now, are you going to get it every time? But if you don't strive for it, you'll never get it. So that's very important, I think. And then be honest with what you've achieved. And if you're in there and a young patient and you don't make it perfect, don't leave it. 
because it's never going to get better. So I think one of the worst words in orthopedic trauma by a surgeon is, it will be all right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what is that saying to the resident? It will be all right. That means it's not perfect, but um, I think it'll be all right. That never gets better. You're condemning this patient. It should never be, it'll be all right. It's either perfect or it's not perfect. Now, if it's not perfect and it's not possible to make it perfect, I understand you. You should say, listen, we can't make this any better. This is the best we can do. It's not that I'm running out to play golf (laughs) or it's the end of the day. We can't make this any better. This is it. That's a different as opposed to it will be all right. Just close it up. It'll be all right. Never gets better. Yeah, I I do agree with you. And you do have a reputation for truly always striving for perfection. And I hear that all the time. I have one more question. It's clinical. I know that in Europe, they sometimes treat the open book pelvic fractures with the hemodynamic instability slightly different than we do here. Do you have an algorithm of how you recommend treating those? You know, there are different mechanisms for your open book pelvic fracture. We see the childbirth is one group. And when they have chronic instability, I'm now the guy. I don't know how that happened. So I've seen... uh, up to 12 centimeters opening from a delivery. 12? That's one group. And as you can imagine, that's a pure external rotation deformity. So it's not like another one with a combined mechanism. And I think if it's, you put on a binder, obviously, and you treat the patient, and some of those need surgery. So that's one group for the pure open book pelvis. The other group, I think, in hemodynamically unstable, and I've seen from postpartum hemodynamically unstable as well, For that group, because you don't want to do an open reduction in the space of retsis when they just have all the engorgement from delivery because the Mm. bleeding is just horrendous. So for that group, I think if you need to do something, I think you should put a frame on until that's all resolved before you do anything else. For most open book pelvis, as you know, even dynamically unstable today, the treatment of choice is some kind of binder. And binders are really revolutionized, I think how we manage them in the first day or two. It's been dramatic in my lifetime. Uh, having um, the ability to do CT angiogram has also changed how we manage things. So if we see a blush in the CT angiogram, you know that's not going to resolve itself. You're going to have to do something. You need to do it soon. I think also having the ability to do some of your fixation in an open book pelvic pressure with fluoroscopy and without major opening up, even if it's temporary. So I have no problem placing on a X-fix in a comminuted anterior open book pelvis or plating the symphysis and then closing the back, whether you use a frame of some kind to close the back or use the um, distractor and put a screw across temporarily and then come back to do your definitive perfect reduction in fixation. Whatever you do, you just want to maintain the pelvis closed and keep it closed. So acutely, I don't think that necessarily has to be your definitive procedure. As far as using embolization, is that what you were trying to drive? That versus, you know, pelvic packing. Some people use C-clamps and things like that. So that's what we do as orthopedic guys. We try and restore the pelvic integrity, whether it's temporary or permanent. And however you do that, whatever's best in your hands is what you should do. Pelvic packing, I have not done pelvic packing if they haven't done a lateral. I haven't not gone in to do pelvic packing if the pelvis is not open. Got it. Personally. 
So I think that patient for me, or I would send down to embolization. After we've done whatever we can to stable it, then I think that patient for me is one that would go for embolization. So I wouldn't do a laparotomy just to do packing if they, general surgeons, were not on board to do that. Although I've been in the operating room and the general surgeon is the breast surgeon and I've done the packing. But anyway, that's a different issue. You understand? So embolization for me is when I've stabilized the pelvis in some way, whether it's permanent or temporary, and the patient continues to bleed, that's the place for embolization. However, if the pelvis has been opened and there's a laparotomy and they're doing something in the pelvis, then that's the place for me for pelvic packing. In Europe, it's a little different because the guys doing the stabilization of the pelvis is also the general surgeon, he's the trauma surgeon. So they probably do more pelvic packing than I do. I don't think there are many orthopedic surgeons in the United States who open up the pelvis to do pelvic packing in a closed pelvis. Got it. I don't know. What do you do in Vermont? I've never seen packing. So, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, it's like in Denver, they do a lot of packing, they're published on it. Trauma yeah. centers like shock trauma. Harborview, they do pelvic pain, but it's the general surgeon to do it when they're doing the laparotomy with the orthopedics involved. But you can't do pelvic packing if you haven't closed the ring. Yeah. Because if you're packing against nothing, it only works if you have a stable ring. So embolization is, I'd just like to mention, it depends on your institution. If you have embolization available 24 seven, then it's a very useful tool. If you call on Sunday and they're coming in on Tuesday, that doesn't really help you. Mm-hmm. True. What about the, when you fix it definitively, some people fuse the symphysis. Any thoughts about that? Early on in my career, I tried to fuse the symphysis a few times. The symphysis has a mind of its own. Sometimes you fix it and it fuses on its own when you don't really have no interest in having it fused. When you try to fuse it, it's very recalcitrant. It just doesn't fuse. So I think primary fusion of the synthesis is not as easy and it's not, a, and unless you get multiple CTs, you'll never know if it's truly fused. So, but I've seen screws back out a little bit from the pelvic plating in the front. I've seen a plate break from the thing. Most of those are asymptomatic. So I don't go in primarily to fuse the synthesis unless it's a chronic problem. Got it. And, and there's a lot of controversy on, you know, front-back fixation, front-only. I'm sure that's changed over the years. Any thoughts on that? Yeah. So I'm not a great believer in the extensile approaches to fix rami fractures. I'm too busy. So I'd rather just put a frame on the front and fix the back. The back for me is the key. However, if the synthesis or there's opening up in the front or the synthesis involved, you definitely have to plate it. So if I'm going to plate the symphysis and I extend the plate up to do some of the rami, great. There's a great wave of enthusiasm now for percutaneous screws to the rami, claiming that those patients can get up and run out of the hospital. (laughs) In my experience with these trauma patients, no one's running out of the hospital. So I almost think that the frames very often is actually a better deterrent, closes the front, the rami almost always heal, and it doesn't allow them to do a hell of a lot. So I think since we've got suprapubic frames now, and if I'm concerned about instability, I'll put in not only a pin in the suprapubic, but I'll put in one in the iliac crest. And so I really control the rotation of that hemipelvis. So I, I'm a great believer. I've used the frames for a long time. 
I don't use frames for pretty much anything else, but I use frames for that. I have never put in one of the subcutaneous anterior bars, but I've taken out three, two for significant complications. For me, I can't think of a good indication to put that thing in. When I can put in two pins in the, on one side and two pins in the other and put a bar across and not do all of that. So I have no experience doing it except taking two out, three out, two with problems. I know that's not a study. What are you, in Vermont, you guys put in those subcutaneous bars? I also haven't, no. Okay, um, don't do it. It's not worth it. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, I can literally sit down with you for hours and talk about the different approaches to these fractures. Maybe I should just—I should have been your fellow. <laughs> Where did you train in Israel? I actually did all of my medical training in Canada, in Toronto. Okay, but where are you from in Israel? Haifa. Haifa. Because yeah. you know, I've trained. Liebergal spent four months with me. Rami Moshev spent six months with me. Eli Steinberg spent, I think, four months with me. I have a lot of yeah. uh, Israeli connections. I know all these guys, and these guys are pretty much running the orthopedic trauma in Israel right now. So your legend uh, continues. One last thing. So, you know, it's very tough to quantify one's accomplishments, uh, but is there something you're truly proud of? You say, you know what, this is something that makes me proud every time I think about it. Probably having kids. <laughs> You know, yeah. that's one of the greatest joys in life, seeing them grow up and mature and figure that you and your wife have done a reasonable job and they'll be at least stable and productive members of society. I think that's a good, that's probably the biggest accomplishment we can have. Orthopedically, in my career, every day, you know, you see people come back and you've done a good job and your team's done a good job and you made them better and they walk down the hall in the office to see you and they want to know if they can play this sport or that sport or do this or if they can get back to their job. Those are all things that just, I had a guy today is, you know, just simple things. You know, I think the guy today is operated on three times in his femur, didn't heal. He was out of work. He finally had to do a big surgery on him and I wasn't sure it was going to work or not because of the devascularization of part of his femur and we spent a lot of time and effort. I saw him today and his three-month x-rays healed. Amazing. And I said to my PA and the fellow, I said, this guy just made my day. Yeah. You know, so just, you know, you've saved a, a productive life. He's in his 20s. You know, he wants to, he's a nice guy. He just got... So that's also, but I think the other thing though I feel very strongly about is to have so many fellows now teaching medical students, residents, that's all good and well, and obviously I take that very seriously too, but they're not the potential future in your subspecialty. And to make an impact in your subspecialty, a serious impact in your subspecialty, and understand if they then have fellows and have residents and impart that to the next group, whatever that is, that's huge. And so I think that the collective experience of having done that for this many years and seeing them all thrive, that's probably as good as it gets. Thank you for sharing incredible wisdom and insight. And it's nice to see, you know, the story from how you started as a general surgeon in South Africa. I'm a lucky guy. 
Yeah. Things well, worked out. I'm a lucky guy. <laughs> I want to thank you again, Dr. Halford, for joining us tonight and for sharing some very insightful stories from your career. We all appreciate the impact you have made on the field of orthopedic trauma. Thank you again for joining us and please subscribe to the OTA podcast channel at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the OTA podcast, a Convey MD production. Make sure you don't miss an episode. Subscribe to the OTA channel wherever you get your podcast. And to learn more about becoming a member and providing the highest quality orthopedic trauma care, visit the Orthopedic Trauma Association at OTA.org.